Hello, listeners. You're tuned into Food to Go. I'm Bethan Grills, editor of New Food, the publication behind the podcast, and I'm joined by my co-host Joshua Minchin. Good afternoon, Bethan. How are you? I'm lovely. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, yeah, had a nice weekend. The sun's been out recently. We can go and freeze in each other's gardens now in the UK, which is good. So uh, oh. yeah, feeling positive. I oh, know. Have you been to the pub yet? I haven't. No. Um, I'm hoping maybe tomorrow afternoon after work, if you uh, let me off early, I'll uh, be down the pub. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> well, as usual, Josh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to start this podcast with a hard hitting fact and just bring you back to reality. Sorry. Yeah, come on, bring me down like last time. That's it. Okay. So according to the World Health Organization, almost 23% of all deaths annually are due to preventable environmental causes due to mining, fracking and industrial agriculture. Heavy metals, chemicals, plastics and pesticides can make it into our oceans, our drinking water, our food and even the air. These contaminants have been associated with chronic diseases such as cancer and infertility. How's that, Josh? How do you feel? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's classic new food podcast, isn't it? Classic food to go. Um, last time was desertification. The time before that was veganism. We never dis- we never discussed sort of like the joys of of hot chocolate, or it's always things like this. I'm sure one time we can we can discuss the joys of hot chocolate. <laughs> So this is this is quite a uh, a technical topic. Um, so we've got some real experts on the show with us today. Um, we've got Jackie Bowen, the executive director at the Clean Label Project, and Oliver Amdrup, the CEO of Puri. Hello, Jackie and Oliver. Hi, guys. Hey, how are you? Very well, thank you. Very well. Um, hopefully, we haven't um, depressed you too much with our um, negative beginnings. Yeah, but then as we talked about, I'm a professional buzzkill at dinner parties. And so frankly, this feels like an, any good Thursday morning to me. <laughs> and I was depressed already, right? So uh, here we are. <laughs> so, so let's get started. You know, um, I, I want to talk about, uh, you know, I mentioned quite a few things there, you know, pesticides, chemicals, plastics. I want to talk about heavy metals. What, what exactly... What exactly are they? Heavy metals are, well, first, they're naturally occurring in the Earth's crust, right? Channel it back to the days of kind of middle school and you see the periodic table of elements. You're seeing things like arsenic, cadmium, lead, mercury. Uh, These are things that are naturally present in the Earth's crust, but because of human interaction, human interventions, things like mining, fracking, industrial agriculture, the use of wastewater as irrigation, all of these things serve as pollutants um, into the environment. And the contaminants end up in the air, the water, and the soil. And unless brands actively, proactively, voluntarily choose to think about food safety differently, they inevitably will end up in the food and consumer products provided for you know each one of us as well as our families. As you said, Jackie, they're on the periodic table. And I, mean, I, I sat in my biology class and my chemistry class with my goggles on and looked at that table, but I never imagined that that had anything to do with with food. So so why why are heavy metals an issue when it comes to food and drink? Yeah, so so typically when you think about food safety and you think about almost uh, 
I mean, I call it like the food safety regulatory practices and policies that are in place. They're typically focused on microbial and pathogen contaminants. Think about E. coli, salmonella, listeria, things you hear about from, you know, in burrito restaurants, salad mix recalls, uh, you know, chicken recalls, that type of thing. When it comes to heavy metals, though, I mean, what's interesting is that there isn't a kill step, so to speak, that you can use, unlike pathogen microbiological contaminants where you can use uh, high pressure or you can use temperature heating. When it comes to heavy metals, the only way to avoid them is actually through proactive, I mean, it would be proactive supplier assurance, doing that screening on your incoming incoming ingredients before it ends up in your, in, before it ends up in your finished product. So the, the thing that you see taking place is that you know, when it comes to microbial and pathogen contaminants, you see things like, um, you know, vomiting or, you know, diarrhea within 24 to 72 hours. But when it comes to heavy metals, it can take years, even decades to manifest itself in chronic disease. So it's not one where you would say, oh my God, I should not have eaten that coleslaw at yesterday afternoon's potluck. I think I woke up today with infertility. Meh. Like you, that doesn't happen here. This is one where it's like, you know, 20, 30 years down the road because of this repeat low level exposure that has subsequently, you know, wreaked havoc on your system. Now you understand, now you kind of start seeing the long-term implications. So it's more so about kind of heavy metals, pesticides, plastic contamination within food, and it's linked to chronic disease, um, unlike what we're looking at is with, with the acute illness can, that can happen from traditional microbial or pathogen contamination. Well, that's, that's pretty scary. I mean, um, I, I want to bring Oliver in into this discussion. I mean, you know, how can food and drink actually become contaminated like this so it, it obviously depends on the the food and drinks that you, you you're seeing but if you if you think of the soil right and you're you, you put a plant in the soil and uh, you, you want to use that that plant afterwards for for consumption if the soil is polluted uh, either through groundwater you know any other activities nearby or, or what's going on that might end up in the plant. There's a very big reason, a very big chance it end up in the plant. And if you didn't talk about, let's say, a concentration of foods and in, in an industry that, that we work more with, like, you know, natural products that are, you know, concentrated, such as a protein powder and so a similar, you, you actually concentrate the, the nutrients, but you also tend to concentrate the environmental toxins. So you want to be damn sure that if you, if you start with the raw ingredient, that's, uh, that's the one that needs to start with a at a good clean uh, um, yeah state. First of all, Oliver, I mean, I, I I've read a bit and I, and I hear the sort of the word cancer thrown around a lot when it comes to heavy metals. I think the first thing I, I should ask is, is is there any scientific evidence of heavy metal contamination being linked to cancer? It's so hard to pinpoint to one single item, but as we also know with cancer, it's it's often uh, due to repeatable issues. And if you think of your diet. Let's say you're eating the same, you're living the same place, you're you're kind of exposed to the same amount of pollution and so on. You know, there's uh, it's it's really hard to single out. But but Jackie, maybe you can you can come with a little bit more detail on. Um, yeah, absolutely. So it, it's it's interesting when it comes to heavy metals and exposure and causing things like cancer. There absolutely has been. Um, studies in laboratory animals showing this, showing these links. Um, it's interesting because when you look at 
kind of heavy metal exposure uh, to people. It's also one where, for example, especially here in the States, we had the whole Flint, Michigan drinking water crisis. And for those Mm. that aren't familiar with it, essentially what happened is the uh, the water source was switched from the Detroit River over to the Flint River. In the process of doing so, necessary preservatives weren't included to prevent the leaching of the lead pipes that hadn't been used in years and even decades. And what happened over the course of several years' exposure to this population of people that were consuming this drinking water, um, they were exposed to elevated levels of lead um, to the tune of 20, on average, 27 parts per billion. Um, put that number into perspective, the max amount of lead that's allowed in Drinking water, according to the Environmental Protection Agency, is 15 parts per billion. And five parts per billion is the number where the Environmental Protection Agency gets nervous, so to speak. Here's the kicker, though, is that the World Health Organization, the Food and Drug Administration, the Center of Disease Control, um, American Academy of Pediatrics, American Medical Association, all say that there's no safe level of lead. So the thing is, there's actually a difference between public health limits and regulatory limits. It doesn't mean that 15 parts per billion is good for you. It essentially means, you know, congratulations, folks, officially getting real. We are now going to deploy federal resources to fix the problem because it has gotten that bad. You want to aspire for less because of the long-term health effects. And kind of since then, you know, after the Anderson Cooper, Katie Couric's of the world and the journalists leave, then the epidemiologists roll in to figure out what exactly happened to this population of people. Since then, you know, fast forward five years, what you see is a significant decrease in the fertility of women of childbearing age. The children in Flint, on average, weigh 5% less than they did before the exposure. And right now, the children that are exposed to these elevated levels of lead during their most formative years are now entering grade school, and Flint is crumbling under the sheer volume of children qualifying as special education. The thing is, is that for the most part, heavy metals are not regulated in the domestic food supply. So in this type of instance, it's one where here's an actual unfortunate human case study of what happens when you're talking about um, lead exposure in drinking water to a to a vulnerable population. Uh, you know, and another parallel I always like to draw to uh, that I always like to make is that you know, it's it's crazy to think, but cigarette smoking was actually encouraged for pregnant women in the 1950s to reduce anxiety, reduce weight gain. Um, it was even allowed, cigarette smoking was even allowed on airplanes until the 1980s. Now, it wasn't that studies weren't being done that showed links between, wait a second, you know, smoking is also linked to lung cancer. Wait a second, studies are coming out showing you know, links about low um, birth weight and uh, premature delivery when it comes to pregnant women and, and children. It took a while to manifest itself into actual regulatory and public policy, but it wasn't that the science didn't show that those were already the links. We're in a similar situation right now. Plenty of different academic studies have been released showing things around the adverse, long-term adverse health effects associated with chronic low-level exposure to heavy metals. It's just one where it has not yet manifested itself in public policy, but you're already starting to see you know, changes in the air, especially here in the U.S. But Jackie, what I also think is interesting uh, along those lines is that you you know you often hear scientists uh, debating different things, especially now if you if you look more at like diets or, or different type of uh, health initiatives. There's always like pros and cons, but you never hear scientists debate whether or not heavy metals are good for you. Yeah, there's nobody saying, "Oh, you need a little heavy metal, that's great." 
I, I, I think it's interesting when everybody, every scientist is pointing one direction, I would do my best to try to eliminate it from my life. I just really want to, to go to a drive through and have someone say, do you want heavy metals with that? <laughs> uh... More or less? Yes. <laughs> So, I mean, it does sound like everyone's in their group that they're not good for you and that we shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be having too many of them, at least in our food. So to that end, what is the industry doing about it or what, what are the regular, regulatory bodies doing about it? Yeah, that's definitely a twofold question. And, and to talk to the industry, I think there is a, at least there is a as a part of the industry that's, that, that's growing too, that's focused on providing uh, let's call it clean products and looking at the sources of the origin of different products to make sure that they're providing the best possible uh, products out there. But, but to be honest, the industry is also doing far too little. Uh, as Jackie mentioned, we look more at like the things that get you instant sick than the stuff that, that takes time. So, uh, you know, we'd, we'd love to have the industry do uh, far more about looking at the, the final products that their consumers are consuming uh, to make sure that they don't get a additional amount or an unsafe amount or just any amount of, uh, of heavy metals. Oliver, you you and Jackie have done some work together on this. Can you can you tell us about the, you know, because I know that Puri kind of prides itself on being a, a clean label product. Um, obviously, if you clean label, you you don't want heavy metals in there. Can you can you tell us about how you kind of ensure that? Yeah. So first off, like it's 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 extremely hard to ensure. Uh, it's almost impossible to do hundred percent, right? Because we are buying and talking natural ingredients. So the first step is obviously to figure out where you're sourcing uh, your ingredients from. How clean are they? Are they consistently clean? Does it change? You know, you got to know your manufacturers. The uh, you, you got to know the place, uh, whether it's the oceans where the fish is caught or uh, the fields where the plants are grown. You gotta you gotta get to that level of scrutiny, and you gotta go down and then just do samples and test uh, through a laboratory, like use the laboratory to actually see what's in the product, and and from there on you kind of build your own map and and you start working with it, but. But it's 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 almost impossible, and we're seeing that too. Even though we try to to source the best, buy the most organic, uh, sorry, the most uh, expensive organic certified. You know, we kind of map where we think the the stuff is the most clean around the world. You know, we try to buy. We still find stuff in it. So we gotta make sure, like the the whole idea and, and why we like the clean label project and and the, the stuff we've been doing with Jackie for the transparency project is to actually provide data on every single batch of every single product so just like you're looking up on a label and looking for you know how much protein fats what's the kind of stuff that's in this product you know we want a behind the label screen like the green label can do where you actually can see exactly you know we found x parts per billion of trace heavy metal or we found xyz pesticides or hopefully none of them uh, but uh, that is uh, that is that's really hard to do. Yeah, and I would I would add to that, Oliver, that you know when it comes to what industry can do and what industry can do better, what's realistic is that you know ultimately we all have to live with the bed that we've made. That because of our societal choices around things like mining, fracking, industrial agriculture, and the environmental policies that we've put in place, this is what we're dealing with are the ram of you know repercussions of those decisions nevertheless there are things that that industry can do and along the lines of what 
obviously what Oliver said around testing, the other thing you can also do, which I always encourage brands to do from a cost savings perspective and ease perspective, is start with a really good risk assessment. Certain agricultural commodities are just inherently higher risk than others. And one of the things that you hear about is rice is just inherently good at you know sucking up different types of heavy metals from, from the soil. We also know that water is another source of heavy metal contamination. So it's a matter of you use certain high-risk ingredients, do that risk assessment, be proactive, and also recognize that there's regional variability. In other words, with some agricultural commodities, you buy them in a certain area of the country, and it's it's totally fine, it's clear based on based on the soil quality. Be in a different part of the country, it's a different story. Here domestically, when you talk about the the water supply and you're looking at the rice supply, um, in the southeastern U.S., uh, there's a lot of rice grown in that area. But decades ago, that used to be where um, tobacco was planted. And you look at some of the pesticides that are used in tobacco plants, as well as cotton plantations, those types of things. And what you see is that, you know, the soil in those areas are just now have an elevated amount of heavy metals within within the soil. Um, over on the West Coast, it's a little bit cleaner. So depending on how you go about that regional variability, doing those risk assessments um, can also help you streamline your program. Um, incorporating those, finally, third, um, incorporating those into your HARP-C program. That would be your hazard analysis and preventive risk controls. That's kind of like this tangent to your HACCP program, but this is one that's most focused more so on preventive risks, identifying where you have potentially authenticity issues, where you have these contamination issues, and try to put checks and balances in place where possible. Oliver mentioned there the 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 word organic. Can you can you kind of make sure that organic is is it cleaner? Is it worth it? You know, is it worth that extra cost? Organic for for most parts has. Uh you know, zero to very little amount of trace of pesticides. So the stuff that they're actually adding into it, which is good, especially from the test or from the test that we've done and seen, uh, it still might happen. But organic doesn't look at, for example, heavy metals when we're talking heavy metals. So it doesn't really help you in that regard. And, and as Jackie have seen in several of her studies as well, like you've seen uh, the uh, the conventional produce uh, scoring better on heavy metals. So it, it doesn't help you on that side. But then there's also the other uh, leg of it, and that's, uh, you know, it can be uh, animal welfare, it can be, you know, how they're, how they're kind of, you know, taking care of the soil for sustainability. There can be a lot of different things uh, into organic that makes sense. So I would still say uh, I would prefer to have actual lab data so you could test and screen like an additional label. So really, like, that should be the future uh, in in. in in my world, where you could actually see exactly what's in on all the major categories. So especially we can start with the, with as Jackie said, the risk assessment and say, okay, these food groups or uh, types of areas, they are at high risk. You know, we should definitely make sure we do a lab test on them before they're sold to the consumer. Because isn't it kind of crazy that you can actually go out and buy products out there? Uh, that has, uh, for Jackie, maybe you can mention some of the baby food studies, just the amounts of uh, trace heavy metals above what you would be allowed to have in drinking water that you can actually find in foods because people are not testing for it. So it's, it, it, yeah, it, it feels to me like it's, there should be something to do. Industry, other government regulation eventually should be able to screen for this stuff, at least in the high risk uh, areas, in my opinion. Yes, I would agree with you. And, and I concur with with what you said, Oliver. When it comes to organic and Clean Label Project has tested, you know, thousands, if not tens of thousands of food and consumer products. And absolutely, the organic promise of less exposure to pesticides holds true. 
to Oliver's point, though, is currently organic does not account for heavy metals. And the reality here in the U.S. is that less than 1% of agricultural land is certified organic. Um, And therefore, the USDA National Organic Program currently allows the use of conventional compost. Um, The reason for that is obviously in certified organic, you don't want to be able to use things like synthetic fertilizers and uh, soil amendments and those types of things. So in this case, it's when you resort to using conventional compost, it's coming from conventional chicken litter facilities, you know? So it's here, here you're taking this beautiful certified organic soil, applying, you know, conventional uh, industrial animal production uh, you know, outputs, you see, we're talking about the chicken poop and the, you know, feathers and that type of thing and applying it to these fields. And, and I, from my perspective, that's where at least I think that I'm seeing the elevated heavy metals within some certified organic products. Um, but nevertheless, just like we talked about, that's not the case for all certified organic products. And that also comes back to doing the risk assessment within the U S just within the past couple of weeks, there's been a significant, um, push and, uh, effort and, kind of conversations around the levels of heavy metals in America's best-selling baby foods. Clean Label Project actually in 2019 published a peer-reviewed study on the levels of lead and cadmium in best-selling baby foods and infant formulas. Um, It's just one because obviously this is a vulnerable population. Uh, The World Health Organization says that the first thousand days of life are critically important to long-term health and wellness, and it's the window of opportunity where optimum brain and immune system development is established. So along those lines, it's a matter of if there is a point where we want to as much as possible control for um, you know what's going to make for the you know the healthiest person possible. Those critical first few years are key, and that's where this heavy metal conversation is really becoming an area of focus. That's really interesting, checking. I, I didn't even think about the compost aspect of that, so um, really enlightening for me. Regular listeners of the podcast will know that it is my job to be very cynical. Um, <laughs> Becca knows what's coming. Um, Jackie, Josh is a a, a perfect uh, dinner party guest. I think you. he is too. I love it. Yes. Just bring every strap back down to earth every time. It's, it's, uh, I, I just think that organic food is, is more expensive than ordinary food, so to speak. Um, should there not be a sort of a baseline just for ordinary food? I mean, why should people who perhaps can't afford it have to pay more to ensure that their food hasn't got arsenic or cadmium in it. That just seems to me like it's, it's desperately unfair. Oh, oh, I 100% agree with you. It's one where even with these conversations that are taking place right now in the U.S. related to baby food and infant formula, this is not an organic problem. This is a food problem. Um, the conversations are, you know, even with, with baby food, it's like, okay, we're having a conversation about baby food and infant formula right now, but it's one where ultimately this is going to be a systemic-wide food problem of where exactly are our priorities when it comes to both short-term as well as long-term health and trying to prevent chronic disease. But Yes, access to safe, nutritious, high-quality food should not just be reserved for for people that can afford certified organic. Is there a correlation between cheaper food and safe or non-safe levels of heavy metals, or is that not true at all? Uh, that's a I would I would love Oliver's perspective. I'll give you my first take. I remember when we did our infant formula and baby food study for the sake of conversation. Um, the way I, I pulled the data, and I actually haven't I haven't released anything along these lines yet, but the way I pulled the data related to infant formula is so um, I tested 91 of the top-selling infant formulas in America that made up 80% of the overall retail sales. 
And then we went through and looked at, of course, the lead and cadmium levels. But then I went through and identified which of the infant formulas were classified as being WIC approved. In other words, for your listeners, that would be um, approved for women, infant, and children, um, for people experiencing, you know, let's say low income and those types of things. And it was interesting because infant formula in the U.S. is the most highly regulated food when it comes to nutrition. But heavy metals, again, has not been something that has been part of the conversation. So it was interesting because when you actually look at WIC-approved formulas compared to just across the board of all formulas, you do see that there are WIC-approved formulas that were non-detect for heavy metals, non-detect for lead and cadmium, as well as ones that were not WIC-approved. In other words, you know, from an engineering perspective, what gets measured gets done. And what it tells you from a WIC-approved perspective, um, there are safe, affordable, nutritious infant formulas that are out there that are absolutely WIC approved. And compared to some of them that are not, they performed really well. It's It literally comes down to the fact that, like I mentioned, what gets measured gets done. And the absence of regulatory policy requiring brands to look at this, it comes back to the brand saying like, I'm going to voluntarily and proactively give a damn and recognize that consumers are concerned about things like heavy metals. I can see the writing in the on the wall when it comes to these advocacy and these different studies coming out. I'm going to proactively align my supplier assurance and quality control systems accordingly and look to control for this as much as possible. So along those lines, it is absolutely possible to make affordable, safe, nutritious food. But I think the, the big one here, right, Jackie, as you also said, is like the access to the data is not there. And I, I, oh, that's you know, true. It's, it's, yep. it's so freaking hot. Like as a, as a, as a father, a mom, or whatever, trying to do it. I remember like traveling in the U.S. and wanting to buy baby food uh, for our kids, and I was like looking at the clean label website, trying to find, you know, the the batches of products out there uh, to see if I could find out. But, but when you walk around like that, and you actually have no access to the knowledge that determines it, you know, how can you? You, you have no idea if the most expensive one or the cheapest one in terms of the, the heavy metal side is, is good or bad. So again, back to it, we need we need the transparency, we need the data, um, and and then from there, you know, it would make it so much more of a of a of a enlightened choice, right? And it's absolutely not fun at all. That's the that's the horrifying part of it, right? Like it's it's so crazy because it's uh, you know people every you know I you probably can't find many high quality products out there not saying that they have the cleanest product out there. But why is that not exactly. measured on data? Why is that not benchmarked? Exactly. It's like this guys have uh, 0.3 parts per billion of this in it versus this one who had 15. You know, like, why is it not like you would never buy a car with just the knowledge that, you know, it this goes uh, pretty far on the gallon, you know, or if it was electricity or whatever kind of, you would have data to benchmark different products against each other. So if you were buying cars, you could see the difference in XYZ product over each other because it's the same thing you're trying to achieve. And that's the data that I hope Jackie and uh, and, and others out there can can help pioneer and get out. So it becomes mandatory to have that, that data because it's, yeah. you know, it's expensive. Yes, to do a lab test, but honestly, it's not that expensive. So yes, it is something that you you can you you have to add some cost to, but how expensive is it to not do it? Like I think the 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 long term risk effects of this is so much more significant. And 
I, I feel as well. I'm, I, I think I'm more of a consumer than, you know, an industry in, in this. But but if, if I'm a consumer, I am buying, I go down and say, That's what, I want to buy the organic, local, uh, whatever product that I can get on. It, it looks like it's the most. And I have no freaking idea if it actually brings uh, the promise that that it holds. So you know, it's I, I it's it's feel like I'm cheated, right? Like by by someone. So we need the data. That's that's the the takeaway in my my opinion. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, one thing that I it's absolutely leapt out at me from from what you both just said. Um, I haven't got children, but if if I did, and I was walking to the supermarket and I bought some some infant formula, I'd absolutely just assume that this has been measured for and that this data is available. So, so, so why isn't it available? Why, why isn't it sort of being taken as seriously perhaps as, as salmonella or as listeria? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great point. Why isn't it? I, I would say at its core, like what the concept, the economic concept that um, Oliver and I have been describing, it's information asymmetry. It's basically where one party has access to more information than another. But if the other party found out, they'd be mad and they'd feel duped. And that's the case when it comes to buying food and consumer products, is that it's one where there's certain assumptions that you have when you buy a product that's especially here in the U.S. labeled as sustainable, natural, says it's full of wholesome goodness and everything like that. But the case is that you know, when it comes to the actual regulatory requirements, it just, heavy metals have not made their way into traditional, you know, into food safety policy. It's even when you think about it, when you go to, you know, let's say a restaurant, I fortunately have never had like a, a food safety issue that you've had to, you know, report to the health department and, and then they do kind of like a trace back. But the thing is, because you get these low level exposure to heavy metals routine within every meal that we eat, it's not one that you can trace it back to a single ingredient. It's basically across the board until we collectively decide that, you know, we're going to make sure that food safety accounts for long-term health and safety as well. It, it requires a, sh- a shift in mentality as well as around policy. Are we being too harsh on the industry? You know, do they know about this issue? Do they, do they know, can they avoid it? You know, what can they actually do? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, Oliver, I'd, I'd love your thoughts on that, but I, really quick, I guess I would say, I don't look at it as like, in no way do I think anyone in the in the food industry is intentionally peppering their products with heavy metals, pesticides, or plastics, or anything like that. Quite the contrary. I think that brands want to do the right thing. But in the absence of policy requiring them to look at it, they're, they're not necessarily required to. The other thing is, it's like, let's be honest, when we're talking about mining, fracking, and industrial agriculture, people that are making food products are not the ones doing the mining or the fracking. You know, so it's it's one where it's like, there's very much other industries and the externalities associated with the pollution from those industries that are very much affecting our soil quality, air quality, and water quality. I don't think that the brands in any way actually know. And I think one of the studies that you did, that you did, Jaggy, on the uh, I think it was in the protein powder category, but where you saw how many brands that actually promoted themselves of being BPA free had BPAs in it. And I, I, I really don't think that, I think people are buying it under the understanding that, you know, I'm buying from a good source. I have a trusted relationship, even supply. I don't think because as, as we said earlier, what gets measured gets attention. And so I don't think these things are measured in the way they should. So I, mm. I, I don't think necessarily uh, that the the people there in any way or the brands or the industry are, are trying to, you know, uh, you know, to clother it or, or make it uh, complicated. I think they sincerely believe they have a clean product. 
and that's that's back to the point of, of data right if you have data to benchmark it against it's uh, it's much easier to define clean in order to get this data what do we have to do can we come up with some solutions here it all sounds a bit hopeless at the minute yeah i i, I guess i would say a few things i mean even if we just use for the sake of conversation um the, the conversation that we've had so far talking about baby food is that you know, over on your side of the pond, there actually are regulations over maximum levels of heavy metals allowed within baby food. You have that. We don't have that. And so because of that, it's kind of one of these things where everything go, anything goes. And it's also one where once you establish the rule, then it's one where it's like, okay, we're going to incorporate this has to be controlled within the HACCP and the HARP-C program. You know, over here, we don't necessarily have it. Now, don't get me wrong, the Food and Drug Administration you know, within the requirements, make sure that your food, you know, has to be has to be safe, but it doesn't necessarily get prescriptive into what exactly that means. So the onus is in the brand to establish what that means. Um, so along those lines, it's one where we're already starting to see that, you know, I, I would say there's more modern approaches to the realities of food safety and contamination within the current food safety, um, within the food safety system that has to be updated. And that means controlling for current realities in the environment, which are your heavy metals, your plastics, um, and your and your pesticides. Uh, so in terms of solutions, it's one where, you know, it's just literally a matter of brands, I would say, out of the gate, recognizing that food safety is no longer just about microbial and pathogen contaminants. You have these other chemicals you need to control for, heavy metals, pesticides, and plastics. Incorporate that into your traditional, you know, food safety quality system programs, your HAPC and your HARP and your HARPC. And once you kind of look at it that way, you can start implementing ways to just make sure that you've got a supplier insurance program in place to make sure that your product, your finished product, meets the consumer expectation of safety as well as, you know, soon to be at least here stateside, some of these emerging regulatory drivers as well. We spoke a bit about um, consumers not knowing about, you know what might be in their products and Josh you you know you said you know you would just you would just assume shouldn't we be a bit savvier for sure we should and uh, I think it also actually depends quite a lot on where you are in the world as Jackie also mentioned I think there's a big difference between let's say uh, Denmark and the trust in some of the Scandinavian uh, food safety versus U.S. in general Uh, so I, I think as a consumer ask questions as much as you can and like if, if you're looking at some of the solutions, what can you do as a consumer? You know, look into the things that you're, you're doing the most repetitive or you're consuming the most of or what are the things that's where you really want to make sure that is, you know, is the stuff clean or am I doing the right things? So it's going to be impossible to tackle it all. But hopefully over time with awareness and, you know, unfortunately, more people uh, directly tied to, as you started out this uh, podcast, uh, sharing how many as of, the, of death is actually related to some kind of environmental uh, pollution. You know, if, if we can tie that closer together, it will get attention. Consumers are much better than we were, you know, many years back due to social media and whatnot to, to actually move on something if they see there's something wrong. So let's just continue with the awareness and education, and then hopefully we can get everything to follow through. Uh, but it's it's not going to be easy, and it's going to take us quite some time to get there. That's for sure. What's the this is for you both? What's the single greatest challenge the food industry faces in this respect? I know obviously it seems like it's systemic, but if you could highlight one area or one thing that the food industry could change to make this better, what what would it be? I think from a food industry and a, as a channels, I would say 
sourcing clean ingredients in the future for a growing population, that's uh, uh, that's going to be hard because as Jack mentioned, let's say we have 1% uh, is uh, organic in, in U.S. at the moment. Uh, that means you have 99% that are still using maybe a, a fair amount of pesticides or, or, or whatnot. And I think that's alarming uh, by itself. I would add to that, mine is a little bit, I would say mine is along those same lines that Oliver had. I was going to say, adopt the philosophy that garbage in equals garbage out. Um, even though it's great that we're starting to see some potential regulatory reform around heavy metals here domestically, the thing is it's like, okay, we're going we're, we're gonna to put these checks and balances to make sure these finished products are set. But so far, I haven't heard anyone talk about how are we going to support the farmers that are growing the food? How are we going to do the necessary soil mitigation in order to fix the problem so we can yield ingredients that are good enough to put in the finished product? And then you go back another step and be like, how are we going to make sure we have the environmental policies to make sure that the contamination that has taken place of our agricultural soils that, you know, that are growing the food that's feeding our vulnerable populations um, is protective enough of public health. So it's one where it's like a little bit of like, you know, the cart before the horse. It's good to see the conversation. It's good to have, um, you know, it's good to have, you know, forward progress. But along those same lines, there's a few other things that need to be put in place to make sure we have a reproducibly good and compliant system. I, I want to conclude this this podcast by asking you guys a little bit about your podcast as well, because I know that, that you two have have um, have started one, um, Coming Clean. That's, That's right, yes. Yeah. I, I love that name. <laughs> it's so it's good. better than ours, Beth. We'll have to nick that. Oh, come on, Josh. Ours, ours <laughs> is good. Ours is good. They're both good titles. But yeah, you, you've just launched this podcast. And... Um, not to assume, but I'm I'm guessing the idea is to to raise more awareness around contaminants such as heavy metals, which don't appear to get a lot of media attention. Because, you know, I see a lot of product recalls. Um, I mean, Josh and I, um, we receive notifications on a daily basis of product recalls from around the world. Very rarely are those anything to do with heavy metals. It's true. Mm-hmm. No, it, it's true. And, and that's the whole focus of the Coming Clean podcast is Oliver and myself, we're not the only kind of crazy people out there talking about like, no, this is this is the very this is a very real threat to both the food industry as well as, as public health. And so the whole focus is to talk to international mavericks and renegades that are out there kind of putting their finger in the air, so to speak, and being like, you know what, this may be an unpopular position and nobody be, you know, it, no one's talking about it yet, but here's what we're seeing. And so we want to talk to those people that are all looking to change the world for the better. And hopefully help by also, you know, this becomes, obviously it becomes a, a kind of a dark subject often. It's like, oh, what am I going to do with this? And, you know, all the issues and how do I actually, there's no data, so I actually don't know. But we want to try as much as possible with the people we talk to to write some kind of solutions or let's say best practices or, you know, just, I would say, simple strategies on uh, what's the best way to avoid or improve, just like you said. So, um, yeah, hopefully some solutions to to the awareness as well. Coming Clean is a fantastic podcast and you should really check it out. Thank you. Thanks for having us, guys. Yeah, thank you for having us. Well, it's been such fun to have have you both on, on the show, uh, Jackie and Oliver. When this podcast goes out, uh, Food Integrity probably will be a, a historical event. Um, so, you know... You've got this extra um, nugget um, of of information um, because Jackie and Oliver are the the 
they're coming back together again. Um, I don't know what the what tends to talk in whether this is going to go out before or after food integrity. So, um, but let's assume it's after. But they they are uh, they're doing a a. Uh, a joint presentation on heavy metals and pesticides for food integrity thanks so much guys absolute pleasure thank Thank you so much much. and uh i hope listeners you've enjoyed another episode of uh food to go um thanks josh again for you know being the a a wonderful co-host as always yeah i'll I'll, um i'll be here next month to bring you all down to earth again um yeah (laughs) same time same time same place (laughs) to be to be new foods buzzkill (laughs) Jackie if you want to swap I'll happily go to Colorado so just let me know I I would love to come out there and get some get some chips yes that sounds yeah you've got great french fries (laughs) yeah you've got skiing beautiful mountains we've got got skiing yeah it's true (laughs) Oliver Oliver should we do a swap should we yeah that's just yeah any travel right now would be (laughs) that's true Well, uh, we'll be back again soon with another podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, We certainly have. uh, Tune in again uh, very shortly. Uh, Josh, why am I so awkward at doing goodbyes? (laughs) Happens every time. It's hard to say goodbye. It is. It is. It's especially difficult to say goodbye when you're having so much fun. But I will. (laughs) Goodbye, listeners. See you again shortly. Bye-bye. That made it more awkward, Josh. (laughs) I had to say something.